This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 6th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and again, broadcasting from Phoenix. I'm going to be talking this week about some things that happened here in the area of federal taxes. And we're going to start with talking about a case where a... Uh, Deposit and use by a sheriff of jail meal money was not found to be a mere misunderstanding, as she was arguing, but the court felt there was still a question of fact that had to be decided, so it, dis it denied her request for just basically, you know, having the, dis having the whole case rendered moot by saying, ah, it's clearly a misunderstanding, and there is no way this could be taxable. They didn't quite accept that view. Secondly, we're going to talk about the uh, another case where a taxpayer, this time something we see quite often, where a taxpayer was given loans, he, as he claimed, but they were loans from a related entity, and he had control over the entity. And the court found that, especially because he expected to repay those loans with future earnings related to his work for that entity, that these were not loans, but taxable upon receipt as compensation. And we'll discuss why he got in trouble, some of the things we see with loans and why loans create such neat issues for us in the area of tax and whatever else you know, I want to talk about there. We also had a major decision this week come down from the U.S. Supreme Court, which on a very close 5-4 split decision ruled that the failure, the non-willful failure to file your foreign bank account reporting report each year is penalized based on a per, per report, not per account basis. So the idea being $10,000 per year, which is how often you're required to report, as opposed to $10,000 per account per year. And finally, we'll look at a case of a CPA who failed to provide substantiation for deductions for his practice, and the court didn't really treat him very nicely, shall we say. He was also penalized for, uh, for the lack of work, shall we say, that he did in this area. So we'll talk a little bit about that case, how things went wrong. And some of the ways that probably it should have been handled better by the uh, CPA in this question. So let's start with the case of Franklin v. Commissioner. This is a tax court order. It's not a final decision in the case. The uh, taxpayer was moving for summary judgment here. And so this is an order from dockets numbers 15054-21 and 4970-22. And this order came down on the 24th of February. This is kind of an interesting case, and it involves an unusual situation, apparently, in the state of Alabama, where it appears, at least according to news reports that Tax Notes was reporting from, that it had been a standard operation in the state of Alabama to, for the state to provide the sheriff of the county personally with money that was to be used to pay for the meals for jail inmates. And this case involves that particular money. And one of the issues here was that the sheriff in question took funds that were given to her to feed inmates, and she moved it to a personal account and apparently used it for some personal investments. And the question becomes now, is that a taxable use of the funds? You know, now, one key issue here that you're going to see in the order, if you go take a look and read the order, 
uh, and we do have the links to these available in the uh, copies of the slides we'll have available on the website. Uh, it was in direct violation of a federal court order. Apparently, uh, turns out the sheriffs might not have been using, apparently, at least in the view of the district court, U.S. District Court, the funds that were given to them to pay for meals for inmates to actually provide sufficient meals for inmates. And so there was an order that effectively prevented, you know, and ordered the sheriffs to only use the meal money for meals. You know, kind of interesting requirement, shall we say. And of course, this particular transfer from her to her personal account was considered to be at in violation of that. And eventually orders came down to transfer those funds back. And as well, the IRS became aware of this little situation. And the IRS came in and said, you know, this actually looks like to us taxable income. In essence, you took the funds. And the argument is, you know, is this a mere misunderstanding? Or was it effectively a, you know, sort of an appropriation of the funds by the sheriff? Was that the intent in question? Now, she claims, no, that wasn't the point. She just, it wasn't clear to her that she couldn't borrow these funds, is the term she used, uh, and then use them to put money into various things she was doing. Um, and she argued that because of that, she had a mere misunderstanding, and it clearly was a loan. And hey, at the end of the day, she paid it all back. Right. It appears to be after she was told by the district court to do so or else, but it did all get paid back. So she says, hey, this is just a loan. There's no way this can be taxable income. Well, the court said, ah, not so fast. You know, there appears to be a clear factual dispute as to whether this was merely a misunderstanding in good faith of what the funds could be used for and a proper loan taken against those funds that she planned to return later to use for the actual use of those funds that they were supposed to be used for, or whether this was basically an appropriation of the funds that gives her effect, that would give her income immediately. You know, we get into the whole questions of, you know, does this amount to basically an accession to wealth that was not really planned to be returned. I guess that's kind of the way you might look at it, or at least there was no obvious way it would be. So in any event, you know, the court found that clearly we need to have some more evidence to get some idea of what you were doing, but it seems difficult, the court thought, to just accept at face value that it clearly could be nothing else but a mere misunderstanding. Now to point it out, when you have a motion for summary judgment, the court is saying, taking all, presuming, in essence, the facts in the most positive light for the non-moving party, which means for the government. Is there any possible way the federal government, the IRS, Treasury, shall we say, could prevail on an argument that these funds were effectively misappropriated, or at least were used in a way that made them taxable income to her? And the court felt Absolutely, at this point, it appears there's certainly enough issues, enough things in play, and enough things that, you know, appear to be asserted by the IRS as being an issue which is not clearly at odds with the record that she produced 
So they said, yeah, we got to go to court on this. Sorry, sorry, Sheriff, but you're going to have to go to court on this particular issue and we'll go to trial, see how things work. The IRS, of course, is looking to treat the entire amount she took out of there as taxable income. They're also looking to disallow accounting expenses and other items, legal expenses that she paid, apparently with these funds as well, deny them as expenses that appears to be this, you know, the IRS is going to apparently try to claim that this represents uh, effectively, I suppose they're saying embezzlement, it would appear, trying to figure out why she couldn't get a deduction if it was truly income. So anyway, the court said, yeah, th th this really requires actually having a trial on the facts. So nope, we can't say just mere misunderstanding, no problem. So apparently the sheriff's going to have to get ready to move further down the line with this case. Next up, another loan case here. This one is Nath versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2023-22. This decision came down on the 27th of February. And this is a little more traditional loan case. Uh, this taxpayer received a loan, receives income from a Cambodian company. Now, it appears to be a family company that he's heavily involved in, and he makes major decisions for this. But in any event, he has this Cambodian company that he receives income from. Now, in the years in question, he received money from the company in one of the years, $1.5 million and another $450,000 that were used to pay his family expenses, etc. Now, he claims these amounts were loans to him. In essence, and remember, the key difference here is obviously we receive cash. Now, if you receive cash as compensation for services, that's clearly going to be a taxable transaction, and that's going to create some problems for you if you're trying to not pay taxes on it. But if it's a loan, right, I go get a loan, let's say, from Bank of America for you know $50,000, and they give me $50,000, that's not income, right? Loans aren't income. The question becomes, because this is a related party, and this is where it gets messier, since this loan was coming from a related party and a party uh, organization over which this gentleman had control, could basically heavily have influence on, now we begin to look a little more skeptically at whether it's truly a loan. It doesn't mean it can't be. Let's be very clear about that. But what it does mean is that the court's gonna be suspicious and is going to evaluate with, with a, you know, kind of more deeply examine the evidence in question because they understand that the same person sits on both sides of the transaction. So if it appears you're merely trying to paper over a transaction, but the reality is that there has never been any intent for this to be a loan, then the court's going to hold almost certainly that's not a loan and is currently taxable. Now, in this case, they did actually have some loan agreements, but the court noted from the evidence in front of it, it was not at all clear when those were executed. And this is part of what makes a loan look legit. And a legitimate loan, I go down to Bank of America, they're not just gonna give me 50 grand. They're going to first want me to sign loan documents, right? Have some sort of agreement and paperwork in play before they're going to hand me the 50 grand. It's not they hand me the 50 grand, and then two years later, we finally get around to writing a note. That's not how it works. Generally, if you're borrowing from a third party, they're going to tie down the loans immediately. 
So in this case, even though he did written documents and written loan agreements, as was noted by the court, it's not exactly clear when they were executed. And of course, the assumption is that the court's kind of saying indirectly is, if it turns out the loan documents didn't get drafted until the IRS agent showed up at the doorstep, and then suddenly we got loan documents drafted, that might suggest that this is a window dressing document and not a real document they intended to make use of, right? The other key issue was there was no meaningful insight or oversight of advances by another party other than this gentleman from that company. So they didn't really have somebody evaluate whether these advances were reasonable. You know, how did they decide, you know, what was enough, how much could they advance him? And what exactly was going on? There was very, very, you know, nobody else was overseeing this. And he put up no collateral. So he had nearly $2 million in loans with no security, right? And when you're going to claim, as he will, that this was meant to be eventually repaid by future services, which is a problem in of itself. But in that regard, even if it had somehow been a loan that would meet the criteria by repaying it for future services, remember, there's always this problem that he could die in the interim and then there won't be any future services. So the question becomes why, you know, you would probably want some sort of security in that case to assure the company could get its money back in case he was unable to perform at this point. The taxpayer also clearly was the only party involved to approve the loans to himself from the company in Cambodia that got sent over to him in the U.S. Again, that looks really bad when you're this person on both sides of the transaction. Does that mean you cannot have a legit loan between a, let's say, a single shareholder and a corporation? The answer is no, you could. But again, if the only person approving it is the taxpayer, all the other facts better look really, really good. Right. If everything's kind of iffy, then there is a huge chance that this thing is going to be ruled to be income. And there's also a risk, to be honest, to the tax preparer who's ignored the problem and has just let the income, you know, this loan build up over the years, knowing that there is no intent whatsoever to pay it back. To be totally honest, what you really need in a loan like this is preferably some actual repayments really makes a big difference if a loan's being repaid in a fashion that looks commercially reasonable. If that's happening, you have a lot better chance of the holding of a loan going through. When it's not, it's different a problem. Because fundamentally, the court came down and said there was no evidence they could see based upon what they were given by the taxpayer that the taxpayer had an intent to repay the amounts. And fundamentally, that's crucial. You know, if there is a loan, the key difference between a loan and taxable accession to wealth is that if you receive the, this wealth, right, the money, and you intend to repay it, that's a loan. If I go down to Bank of America, I get that $50,000 loan from Bank of America. Uh, Bank of America is going to presume, you know, I have an intent to repay. They intend to enforce it. And that does mean if I decide I prefer not to repay it, they are going to pursue legal action. When it becomes aware that, you know, first thing is obviously when you're on the same side, both sides of the transaction, 
there's already skepticism that the company would probably never really try to pursue collection. Uh, there is some risk there, I would say, because obviously if a third party was to get a judgment and was to essentially get control of the company or get a judgment against the company, let's say, for something the company did that was bad, they obviously could go and enforce that note against the shareholders. That's something people tend not to really think about. So that loan does open up you for a liability issue. But generally, you know, we're looking for evidence to repay. As long as he stays in control, is anybody seriously going to do it? The fact he intended to satisfy the advances through future services, he admitted that eventually, also was considered a bad thing. If you give somebody, let's say as an employee, if I advance the employee lots of money, you know, let's say I advance the employee money and that money is funds that we fully expect is going to be taken care of via future services, that generally is going to be taxable at the time it is advanced the employee. The reason being, it's sort of a claim of right. They have unrestricted use of the funds, and while, yes, they have to work for a while to get them, you know, they have to work for a while, and those future services is how they'll earn their way through, that's still considered under the claim of right. That's why a signing bonus, for instance, is taxable, even though, you know, under your agreement that if you don't work for the company for, let's say, three years, that you're going to repay some or all of that bonus. It might be prorated over the three years or maybe an all or nothing clause. You know, you don't make it to three years, you have to repay the whole thing. Um, that's considered to be under claim of right taxable. And if you have to repay it, then you go under the standard claim of right rules, which generally under claim of right, if it's more than $3,000, you would have a choice of taking that as a deduction on the return, or you could take it as a credit uh, equal to the difference in tax, in the extra tax you pay in the year you got the money and use that in the year that you pay it back on that tax return. So the claim of right rules would come into play in those cases. Now, like we said, the court found in this case, the amounts represented income to the taxpayer when the amounts were received and paid to the taxpayer. So it became a straightforward issue there of you got the money, that's income. Again, this gentleman was on both sides of the transaction that always looks to. So the courts tend to look to a couple of things. Let's talk about this because I know, yes, you know, many of you probably have closely held businesses. You have owners that like to borrow from the business. And, you know, that's always going to be an area where the IRS can raise big questions. Let's talk about some of the key things they're going to look for in a case like that. You have to, the first thing you got to do is pass the test of, is this a loan that would have been made without the relationship? Would a third party have ever entered into this loan uh, with this gentleman? If the answer is no, you know, and again, we look at the terms, obviously, you know, if the person's a bad credit risk, but you still might have somebody that would loan at a high enough rate of return. So we're looking for reasonableness there. You know, is this reasonable terms? And that's the other thing you look at. You know, are we giving this person, you know, sweetheart terms, or are we giving them terms that are essentially commercially viable? The same thing we would expect if they were going out and borrowing from whatever third-party lender might be available to them. You know, are we giving terms like that? That's key of showing that. That also means 
that you need to do things like document, right? Now, again, remember NATH, remember the documentation doesn't save it by itself. It didn't in this case. But the lack of documentation generally is going to be fatal. We want to have documentation. We want to make sure it's done before the loan's issued. We want to make sure the documentation, you know, requires reasonable repayment terms, not, not just kind of open forever. Um, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, it looks legit. And you want to make sure you've got collateral, in many cases, you know, would somebody have made, I realize you can get unsecured loans, but if it's unsecured loan, then the term should be similar to that. Higher interest rates, et cetera, should be charged in that scenario. And probably not just, oh, you'll pay it around, you'll pay it back whenever. We don't really care. That's not really likely to be how a commercial loan would come. You know, basically even credit lines have renewal dates where the banks can call the loan. So we need to make sure it looks like legitimately it would be made. And the other big thing is we need some evidence there was an intent to repay. And that hurt the taxpayer in this case because, you know, and it was inconsistent, but he actually referred to it sometimes as salary, which is bad. You know, he also referred to it from time to time. You know, he talked about the fact oh, it's going to be repaid, you know, when, when I earn money later. So it's going to be repaid the advances. It's like that all made it look bad. Now, I think some of this was because it appears that English might not have been his first language and he may have just had trouble conceptually. But again, clients make statements like that. You know, clients, you know, clients, when they make statements like that, that's effectively an admission of what this really is, regardless of what you claim it to be. So, you know, and you got, and people put those documents in the dumbest places. You know, clients will always love to say, how would the IRS know this? And the answer is just like in this case, probably because you'll tell them, or you're going to put it in writing somewhere. And eventually they're going to come across that where you refer to this as your salary. You refer to it as something else, or, you know, some cases do dumb things like include this as income for a loan, which is to a bank, which is like, yeah, all of that's bad. So as I said, it's really important to be very careful when dealing with loans between related parties, especially loans to shareholders that are coming from entities that the shareholder has significant or complete control over. Because quite, quite often we're going to find out that that's going to simply be ruled to be income. We had a decision we've been waiting for a little while on the Bittner case, Bittner versus United States, United States Supreme Court case, docket number 21-1195. This case was decided the last day of February. And this case we've talked about earlier when the Supreme Court took it up. This is meant to resolve a split between the Fifth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit regarding the non-willful penalty for failure to file the foreign bank account reporting form, the old, you know, the FBAR form you send to FinCEN. And we know it's a $10,000 penalty. But the key question becomes in this case, is this a penalty that's applied on a per form or a per account basis? Now, Bittner is the one being a, Bittner is the one who appealed this case and Bittner brought his case in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And Bittner had 272 accounts overseas. 
Now, as we noted, it was non-willful, even though he failed to report a lot of accounts. He had properly reported all the income. He just had a lot of business operations in a lot of countries and a lot of areas. That created the 272 accounts that he should have reported on. So while we're not alleging a criminal issue here where he's, you know, hiding income or doing other things, he still failed to comply with the law. Now, since he had 272 accounts, we added up all the years and the penalties on the accounts, Bittner ended up with a $2.72 million penalty, which obviously was well in excess of the penalty Bittner would have been hit with had it merely been a $10,000 per year penalty. So Bittner, of course, appealed his decision up to you know, first up to the Fifth, the Fifth Circuit. Let's see, follow the history. At district court, as I recall, the taxpayer prevailed. They said it was a per year based on the Ninth Circuit ruling. Uh, the Fifth Circuit said, nope, the Ninth Circuit was wrong. They said, nope, the proper penalty is this, you know, $2.72 million is the proper penalty. And then he took it, Bittner then took that to the U.S. Supreme Court, because believe it or not, for $2.72 million, you actually can now afford to pay the attorneys to argue your case for the U.S. Supreme Court. It's expensive, but not quite that expensive, so we can get the case argued, which they did. So now we're looking at this issue. Is the Fifth Circuit right, or is the Ninth Circuit right? Okay. Now, in a 5-4 majority, so it was very close, and I think this surprised a few people, because a lot of people, when they listened to the oral arguments, believed that the court was overwhelmingly going in favor of the Ninth Circuit view, but that didn't turn out to be the case. The proper penalty is found on a per-form basis. Now, Justice Ginsburg, or not yet, yeah, I should say, not Ginsburg, uh, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Ginsburg is deceased, so we'll have to go with Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the majority, and Justice Barrett wrote the opinion for the dissent. Now, it's an interesting division of the judges. Uh, didn't divide on what we might consider the traditional, you know, conservative liberal grounds, but rather divided a little bit differently. Um, you're going to find that, in fact, the interesting part is the dissenting group and joining Justice Barrett in her dissent, the four, included Justice Thomas, but also included Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. So we definitely had an interesting foursome. And when you look at the other five, uh, you know, that's also an interesting uh, fivesome to come together on the majority opinion. Now, the majority opinion, you know, looked at the purpose of the Bank Secrecy Act and said, well, the purpose here for non-willful is, yes, meant to get people's attention, meant to do it, but kind of decided that it really didn't seem to fit the purpose for a non-willful violation to have this massive penalty because of the accounts when there was nothing that suggested that they were willfully trying to conceal the funds. You know, it, it was one of those things that they came out and said, well, looks like that. They also noted, and this was something they spent time discussing, that prior to a few years ago, the IRS had indicated regularly that the penalty was $10,000 per year. So it was a per filing penalty, per form, not a per account. 
So it doesn't matter how many accounts you failed to report, your failure is to having blown the reporting for that year, so it would be a $10,000 penalty. And they argued more generally that, okay, maybe it's not totally clear in the law, but the rule of lenity, it means lenity, whatever, meaning lenient, uh, requires leaning towards the taxpayer in this sort of case. So we should essentially break in the taxpayer's favor and impose a more lenient penalty when the government imposes a penalty like this, not the more onerous one when it's not clear how it should be handled. Now, Justice Barrett writing for the, um, in essence, Justice Barrett writing for the you know, dissenting group said she didn't buy that. She said that no, as far as she was concerned, the plain language reading of the statute required to be per account. She points out, and the majority did try to work around this, but she said, you know, a lot of the exceptions apply clearly. They can't, they don't apply to all the accounts at once. They're looking at specific accounts for testing for getting you out of the penalty. And it says it doesn't make sense that your exception is going to be on a per account basis, but the penalty is going to be on a per return basis, right? She argued on that side. Now, of course, when you look at this, remember, I understand there was a dissent that was a you know fairly significant dissent, but at the end of the day, the majority controls this opinion. And this majority opinion essentially says that, yeah, it's $10,000 per failure to file. So if you have a problem right now with a taxpayer who failed to file their FBARs, good news, it's only $10,000 per year, not $10,000 per account. Now, probably don't have many people like Bittner who have 272 accounts that were missing. And if you do, you begin to really worry about this becoming a criminal issue. Uh, you know, to be, unless you got good facts, apparently Bittner had good facts on his side, so it wasn't criminal, but obviously the more, the more numbers, the more likely I'm going to say it's willful. But in any event, interesting case in that regard. Okay, finally this week, we're going to take a look at, at, at Amundsen versus Commissioner, Task Court Memorandum Decision 2023-26. This one came down on March 1st. And what this case involves is a CPA, who had a Schedule C on his Form 1040 that reported an accounting practice. Now, this was not a very big practice. We're talking about total revenues of under $55,000. So it wasn't exactly a huge practice and also reported expenses that were pretty equal to that. I mean, it, there was not much net income from this practice, according to the report. However, there were some quirks with his Schedule C. And I think the first one is probably what got the IRS's attention right away. He only had one line, apparently, of expense, which was in cost of sales. Now, cost of sales is an unusual line for a service business first. You know, what's, what's that? Why is that there? But secondly, the total lack of details. So all we know is he, let's say, has revenue of 55000 cost of sales, and that's all we know about this, of 54000 and he's going to pay tax on $1,000. Needless to say, the IRS wondered a bit about that, and the exam started. This is why I would say, obviously, remember, one of our goals when preparing a return 
is to talk to the person at the IRS that's going to make the decision as to where to examine the return. If you prepare a document like this, it looks like something that should be looked at. I think most of us would probably believe that, in fact, you know, if that's what you were given by a client, total income, total expenses, you'd probably say, I need to know a little bit more about those expenses before we can do anything with them, figure out what's there. Now, when he went to trial, he did provide 200 pages of documents, including a voluminous ledger and, you know, copies of checks, but he had absolutely no receipts or no details for the expenses. So you could see a check paid to somebody, but he didn't have any detail as to why he paid that for X for this. I mean, obviously some of them you might be able to guess on, but you know, absolutely no evidence of what it was and no evidence that could help you prove that it related to his business. So that's there. Now the court noted that section 274D barred a bunch of his deductions. 274D is the anti-Cohen provision and essentially says that for certain items, and in his case the big one was travel, that no deduction whatsoever will be allowed to a taxpayer unless they maintain certain levels of records contemporaneously. Now he had also tried to claim a per diem charge but the court noted even with per diem, while you don't have to have the backup for expense dollars, you still have to have all the other things you would need for your per diem travel expenses. That includes where'd you go, why'd you go there, what was the business involved, etc. And they point out he had none of that. So even ignoring that, it doesn't work. Now he tried to argue somehow that, well, based on his reading of the IRS publications, that he was okay, could get it. And the court pointed out a footnote, as they often do, well, we're not going to worry about whether his interpretation was right or not. P.S. It wasn't, but that doesn't matter. Uh, they said, remember that publications don't bind the service. So this is not something you could rely upon. And you should have known that CPA, right? By the way, I do think this guy gets a rougher ride than other people would for the simple reason is, you know, he's an accountant. As an accountant, he, you know, I'm sure the court's theory was he should know better than to provide a one-line expense. And he should know better than to, you know, have these 274D expenses for which he lacks the records. That that's one of those things. Now, his information was not terribly well organized. And the court said flat out, we're not going to slog through all of this stuff, the 200 pages on the and you know searching within there diligently trying to find anything that supports a deductible expense. There were just a few things that were obvious from what he submitted right away that they allowed some minor deductions, uh, including for the public company accounting oversight board, which is like, okay, that that's interesting. Um, you know, so apparently he does something, you know, he's doing some work there on public companies, which Hopefully those companies have a little better records than he was showing here, would be part of the issues. But the court said, we don't have to look at all that detail, you know. And I do think part of this too is, look, you're an accountant, right? You should have been able to present an organized backup for these expenses, you know? So we just think you didn't care enough or you don't have it, one of the two. He did not also provide evidence to support, he claimed 40% of his home, four out of the 10 rooms, 40%, were used exclusively for his accounting practice. 
The court noted that he didn't really have anything to back that up, didn't explain why he needed four separate rooms, you know, provide some sort of proof that they were only used for business on the structure. And they noted that he paid rent for at least one other location, and he had some sort of social club membership he claimed did business there as well, and said, well, that also raises the question whether this is your principal place of business, which would be required for office and home as well. So essentially, he lost on that as well in this area. Now, not surprising, I think most of you would determine, after all this is said and done, he ends up with a big assessment. Well, you know, basically on nearly the entire 50 grand of revenue becomes now taxable with very, 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 very few deductions. And the court imposed an accuracy-related penalty on the CPA, saying effectively you should have known that this wasn't going to work. You know, you need better records than this. As I say, now, don't want to pick too much on this case, but lack of records is generally a big problem in most tax court cases. We see a lot of this. You know, you have bad or non-existent records. We tend to see people lose, you know, for various reasons, and especially on things that have to have the backup. That's also where we regularly see issues. Clients do need to understand, and apparently in this case, the CPA might need to understand about the great importance of having good backup records and being able to you know, provide support for what you're doing. The court noted the standard recitation of the Cohen case was in this opinion, but the court noted that while Cohen says that we can estimate, you know, use reasonable estimates to come up with the expenses, if there's evidence, you know, in, in that, there's some evidence we can use to reasonably estimate those expenses, he noted again that in this case, the court didn't find any evidence that would allow them to reasonably estimate expenses. So even for those things not blocked under the anti-Cohen rules, you know, so for other things, office expense, that sort of thing, you know, office supplies, etc. Again, the court said we have no good way of estimating what he would have incurred there. And so because of that, tough luck, taxpayer. Well, this has been the Current Pro Tax Developments for the week of March the 6th, 2023. As always, Current Pro Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. I do look at the emails from time to time in the, at edzollers at currentpotaxdevelopments.com. You can email me there. Uh, also, we'll check in on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Washington, Illinois, and also take a look from time to time uh, at what may get posted on Idaho's discussion group. So be aware there. So remember one of those societies you can post there. And if I think I can help, I may end up responding to those. So you can take a chance there. Otherwise, hopefully your tax season's working well. Now, next week, we'll be get just before the first due date, right? March 15th is approaching. So that's a week, you know, just a little over a week. So it'll be a week from Wednesday. We have the March 15th, our first extension date. So that ought to be fun. And uh, we'll then be also one month away from April 15th. Hasn't it been such a rapidly passing tax season? Not, not sure we like that that way, but hey, that, that's how it works. So otherwise, we'll see you back here next week for more with current federal tax developments.